Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Saltivation Podcast. Today, we are joined by Joe Geiger, Tax Consulting Manager at Vertex, Inc. Joe has been with Vertex for over 15 years. He is a lawyer, a CPA. He has his master's in tax and his master's in accounting. And he also sits on the advisory board outlining CPE for Strafford. So, Joe, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And of course, we have Judy Vorndren with Saltivation. Hello, Judy. Hello, darling. <laughs> so, Joe, we're going to dive right in. You've been with Vertex a long time. So just tell us how you got there. Prior to Vertex, I worked at Exelon. And Exelon was the largest electric utility company in the United States. It was formed from the merger of Pico in Philadelphia and Comet in Chicago. And when I was there, I started off an income tax for... Pico, but then after they merged, I moved over to the generation subsidiary and became responsible for all taxes other than income, which would include real estate, personal property, excise, fuel, utility, gross receipts, and sales and use tax. And then you quit. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot on my plate, but it was a great you learning experience. You could do experience. it all. No problem. Easy peasy. <laughs> So in many cases, actually, I work with outside counsel to negotiate real estate taxes on the nuclear and fossil power plants, because at that time, utilities were being deregulated by the states, and the power plants were a big target for real estate taxes. So all the counties, municipalities, school districts, they grossly overvalued the power plants. So I used to tease my kids when we'd be driving along and see a new school and say, Exxon paid for that school. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so um, when I was there too, I worked on various tax planning projects, compliance, audit, defense. So I had a great experience there. And when I was there, they had used an old legacy sales and use tax system, and they wanted to get into the tax technology for sales and use tax. And we had invited some of the major players to come in and do their demonstrations and talk to us, Vertex being one of them. And I had a very good experience with the Vertex sales reps and and their tax people that came on site. And they had an opening a few months later, and I applied for the position, and I accepted it. So then I moved (laughs) over to Vertex. I bet Exelon was thrilled about that decision for you, all that substantive (laughs) knowledge. Well, believe it or not, they contacted me for a few years afterwards with questions, but (laughs) (laughs) sometimes you just can't escape. And you know, in the tax world, everyone knows everybody, so. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, so then when you applied for that position with Vertex, what was kind of that uh, that position that you applied for? At that time, Vertex was starting up their sales and use tax consulting branch. And they were looking for someone with multi-state tax experience, with experience in compliance, research, audit defense, and basically just overall consulting experience. So it appeared I was a good fit for that position. Oh, okay. So then is that kind of where you've stayed during your tenure within Vertex is in that, you know, your title now is, is you know, consulting manager, right? So does that mean you've just kind of stayed in that area or have you kind of branched out within the Vertex cloud 
piece, not to be confused with like the, you know, SMB cloud product that Vertex offers, but like, you know, within the Vertex umbrella? Well, I basically am in the same role, except it has expanded because now I also offer support to the, the cloud team, the tax outsourcing group, as well as our tax software group with implementations. And then what about it has kind of kept you there all these years? You know, you have just like this incredible background, right? You've got, you know, you're a lawyer, you're a CPA, you've got two masters. Like why kind of use all of that knowledge and keep it, you know, with a software company? Well, I found it very interesting because years ago, sales and use tax was pretty basic. There wasn't too many changes. You know, basically here's the tax rate. This is taxable. This isn't taxable. And that was it. But over time, it's really evolved. I mean, you had the Amazon case in New York years ago, Mm -hmm. the Wayfair case a few years ago. So you have e-commerce now playing a major part. And with most everyone buying something online now, there's sales and use tax complications and implications. So you have some of the major players like Amazon, Walmart, Target, although those companies need an outside firm with tax software. And in addition to just the software, they like to have someone that they can talk to regarding research, taxability, exemptions, and so forth. And then also SaaS. I mean, I remember doing like Meredith years ago, start out doing a project on the taxability of streaming. Of, down, right? of, of downloaded loaded, movies. Downloaded so movies, not right? Like the, you know, not even streaming, actually. Not even downloaded streaming. movies. But like, mm-hmm. is that tangible? Is it not? Um, many years ago, she did that research. And my one of my first multi, every state research projects was the taxability of software, right? But then all the ancillary services that go with software, i.e. like newsletter, support group, maintenance. Install. Install, config, you know, all that good stuff. Travel, training. And I remember having to unwrap all that by line by line because, as you know, software could be taxable or not depending on how it's delivered. Then it could be the services could be taxable or not depending on how it's invoiced. And then whether you're the one who delivers the software, you're the one that configures the software. Anyway, and this is many years ago because I've been doing this 26 years. And um, I remember telling my client, stop sending it via disk. (laughs) <laughs> like could just stop sending it via disc. We'd have it out in a lot of places. Like we can't, it has to go on a disc. It has to be downloaded. Look where we are today. Not true at all, but the laws were ready for that. So it really made taxability very complicated for software services, managed services, all those kinds of things that we do today. The way that technology has evolved for how we use things like that we're talking on Zoom and you are in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania. We're in Colorado and our SEO guys in Indiana, our producers in Indiana. Who'd have thought, right? We'd be so connected virtually. But And then what's the taxability of that? <laughs> well, what is it even, right? Right. So that's interesting. So you kind of saw that. Because I remember thinking that sales taxes impose on tangible personal property and certain enumerated services. And you're like, I don't see those services. How do you get to tax this? But states took the position that they could tax it. And that was very frustrating to advise taxpayers you can appreciate. Sure, for the most part, um, tax taxability is based on physical nexus. Right. Well, the nexus, but also just the product, right? Whether or not it's enumerated. What I have thought is interesting is how I give the example, a lot of the refrigerator, you buy a fridge and it's 500 bucks, which what kind of fridge is that? Not a very good fridge, but regardless, say it's 500 bucks. And then you want to have 
It's a wine fridge, but you need it. to Well, that wouldn't be true because you wouldn't have water hooked up to it or ice, but you want to have the fridge delivered and installed and the water hooked up, but you also want them to take your old fridge away. So for like $2,000, you can get the whole fridge delivered, installed, and yours old hauled away. But now that delivery, install, configuration, whatever is now taxable because they bundle it all together with the price of the fridge. Now you have a $2,000 taxable item of $1,500 of services. You know, and then that has been a real swing to a lot of people that haven't realized that tax applies to services. So I assume you've seen some of that. And I think people get really aggravated about that in general. Like there's no sales tax on services. Well, and kind of similarly to that, you know, you're, you know, you've kind of stayed with Vertex because it's never boring, right? You're in sales tax and there's this evolution. Do you think... How with that, how do you think the tax, how do you think taxpayers perceive sales tax? And how do you think taxpayers understand that? I think a lot of taxpayers don't truly understand sales tax. Right. I think they pretty much look at it, they get a bill, they see sales tax, the percentage, and an amount. They don't realize what is truly taxable all the time. Right. And as Judy was just saying that when they combine all these different you know, products with shipping and installation, it can make the entire invoice taxable. Or if they list out the item separately, some may be taxable, some may not be. Right. Well, and it's interesting, you know, it's one of those things you can't unsee when you start looking at it and start paying attention to it. With, you know, COVID and whatnot, we've been doing a lot more meal delivery services because I'm cheap and I'm just like, I don't need to pay. All of a sudden, my $8 sandwich has become a $17 sandwich because someone brought it to my door. You know, we've kind of changed from that, but I'll look at it and I'll watch the sales tax calculation change as I add more. Is like I'll change my tip amount, or and I was like, "Huh, should you really be taxing my tip? That's optional. It's separately stated. It's a, it's not a service fee. It's optional. I could say zero, and it, like it's these things and these nuances that are so strange about sales tax that once you pay attention, you can't unsee it or. You know, I've even had a situation where it's like, you know, a multinational like clothing company. I'll calc- I'll look at my tax. I was like, that's that doesn't seem right. So I'll back into it. I was like, you're not charging that right. But you know, <laughs> who know who knows with that? Well, and then have you seen, you know, because Vertex has, you know, historically integrated with the really large ERP systems. And so oftentimes, you know, those companies that can afford those large ERP systems will have an internal tax department. Do you see now that like Vertex, you know, integrates with like the net with NetSuite and you know, some of the smaller GL systems that there's a change in the kind of consumer of the Vertex product and they're not less sophisticated because they're smart, but you're no longer dealing with like a tax manager or tax director doing an implementation. You're dealing with a corporate controller who also does payroll, who also does HR stuff. Have you seen kind of your consumer change or the people who, you know, are buying the Vertex product and being the central point of contact change as well? Most definitely. Vertex initially started off with the focus on maybe Fortune 1000 companies and selling the software that would be on-premise. And in the last several years, with cloud, Vertex has entered into that market space and is offering 
the tax calculation product through the cloud, as well as offering our software to like mid-sized and smaller companies. And many of these companies have maybe one, two people in the tax department or nobody in the tax department, mm-hmm. maybe someone in accounting does tax a couple hours a month to get a return out the door. So we found we had to educate those taxpayers more and guide them, basically pull their hand through the implementation process, explain to them taxability, how our system is set up, exemption certificates, and just basically be there for them when they had questions. Right. So it sounds like you're doing a little bit more education, a little bit more kind of, you know, that hand-holding piece to get them in and to make sure, you know, at the end of the day, you want people to be, you know, satisfied customers, right? Just no different than any other business, right? You want your customers to be happy and not, you know, trashing you on Yelp or Google or whatever, right? <laughs> um, so I think that's, it's it's really interesting. And, and, you know, we've appreciated kind of the expansion of product offerings to make sure that we find the best fit from a service offering for our clients, because it's, you know, sales tax is real. It's gotten national attention, you know, thanks to Wayfair. So have you found that the Vertex phone is ringing more since June 21st, 2018? And our, you know, friends at the Supreme Court with Wayfair? I can honestly tell you the week <laughs> after the Wayfair decision, we had about 700 inquiries. Wow. And mostly smaller and mid-sized companies right. asking, do we have Nexus now? Do we have to get registered? We have to start to collect. How do we do it? We have one, one, one warehouse and one office and one location. And now you're telling us we might have to be filing in numerous states. We don't know the tax laws in those states, how right. the tax is calculated, what the rate is. So yeah, I mean, that was a lot. <laughs> how did you guys ingest that? Were you ready for that kind of demand? We were, but probably not fully. Yeah. Because I mean, it, it came kind of quick and all at one time. Yeah. And we just started to ramp up our sales force to accommodate the increase in inquiries and sales, you know, opportunities. Yep. Well, and so I want to kind of shift from kind of the sales tax side to this other piece of of what you're doing as, you know, on the advisory board for Strafford. You two are co-presenting a course in April and it is called what, correct me if I'm wrong, sales and use tax implications of business acquisitions. You know, just specifically to that, who do you think your audience is for that specific topic? And then as an advisory board, why did you think that was an important topic, you know, to speak on? Very important topic because there seems to be a huge demand now for growth in companies. And most often it's done through a merger and acquisition. I saw that at Exelon after the big merger there between the Pico and ComEd, that they also started to acquire utility plants in other states with deregulation. So they own plants in Texas, Indiana, Massachusetts, New York, Virginia, all over the place. And many of those states weren't really ready for deregulation of the utilities. And so what did that mean, do you think? I mean, in terms of the dereg and then why acquire? If you got a good business in a state, there's enough demand to service it. Why buy another one, right? Why do you think that that happens? Sometimes it's hard to enter a marketplace, especially yep. if you don't fully understand the market. 
Yep. So if you have a company that's already established in a market, yep. you know yep. what you're getting for the most part. You know the people that have been there for a long period of time, the relationships they have built, how their systems work. So many times it just makes sense to acquire a company as opposed to going in new into a new territory and starting. Well, sure, I agree with that, but why even bother? Why not just stick with what you got, keep your own market? Why add more, right? What value are companies bringing to that? And then you're going to have disparity of how things are run. Those are the challenges, I think, from assimilating, you know, a different culture into a new, you know, a, a, you know what I'm saying, different cultures and all that good stuff. Sure. I mean, there's obviously a lot of challenges when you merge two companies mm-hmm. together. I mean, everything from the work culture, systems, I'll say level of experience of, of the people. Mm-hmm. But again, if you look at, is it easier to start up a company or to acquire one? Or if you have a company say, hey, I'm pretty comfortable in my marketplace, sooner or later, you're going to start losing market share because other companies are going to pass you by. Yep. So you want to be out in the forefront and be a leader as opposed to sitting on what you have and being happy. Right. So that's why it seems important. I got that makes sense to me. Well, and, you know, depending on, you know, kind of the size. And I think, you know, I'm familiar with ComEd because I I grew up in Illinois and they were our, you know, power providers or whatnot. But, you know, some of these publicly traded companies, it's like, hey, I have an obligation to my shareholders to grow my profit line. And what's the best way to do this? Is it, you know, is it expanding into new markets? Is it doing some homegrown stuff? And so some of the the growth pieces just come from what's the, what's the best and fastest way to do that, you know, with obviously some, no acquisition is ever easy, but is it short-term sacrifice for long-term gain? And I think often, often you see that. Right. Because even Judy in the Denver marketplace, I was thinking, you know, as Joe was talking, we've found, you know, over the last couple of years, even that there are Denver's had this incredible system of growth, right? With companies moving in. And we've seen kind of like large West Coast, California based CPA, CPA firms even like come into the Denver market and try to buy local practices to build that, that presence in Denver. And so, you know, it's like, this is this is the best way to get there versus starting from scratch with a name that no one knows. And at least you're coming into a market where you're buying clients in a relationship as long as you can keep those people. And, you know, there's that, you know, cost benefit piece. Are you going to come in and shift culture such that, you know, your key people drive out, you know, you drive those people out and t- they take their clients with them. And then even you all will be talking with kind of this business acquisitions piece about various implications of of tax, right? And and you know specifically for sales tax, can you talk about some of the things that you're going to talk about specifically within this kind of this training class? Sure. Um, basically, what we'll focus on will be the implications of sales and use tax for a merger and acquisition. I mean, there's a couple major ways to acquire a company, either through a stock acquisition or an asset sale, and it has different tax consequences. I mean, if a company is going to acquire the stock of another company, they're also going to inherit any tax liabilities or exposures from the past. With an asset sale, you're going to avoid any of that. So it depends how the deal is structured, could have a significant impact on tax exposure. Mm-hmm. And also, too, with, with a merger and acquisition, you need to do your due diligence and make sure that the target company is compliant 
and up to date with all their filings, their taxability determinations, where they stand with audits. So there's a lot to think about for a merger and acquisition because there's so many different things that could go wrong. And sometimes they'll actually delay a deal or even kill a deal. Right. I've seen situations where the sales tax has really been an afterthought. And I don't know if your perception, Joe, since Wayfair, it's gotten more prominence. But I would say over the years, I feel like it's the day before, oh, we forgot about this. Or, oh, we're buying the assets because we didn't want to take on any liabilities or whatever. But, oh, we didn't know that sales tax follows an asset sale. I think people really don't know that. The legal community doesn't seem to know that. Or like the bulk sale laws versus not having a bulk sale law in a state when you're buying all the assets of a business. I think people, it's a trap is what I have found, given that I work in this field. I'm like, how do people not know this as a legal community advising a buyer? But they're more worried about the numbers and the deal and the whatever, the T's and C's. And then all of a sudden it's like, there's a sales tax accrual you should book. <laughs> oh, you know, what? what is your experience there, Joe, on that? I agree with that. Um, Sales tax is typically an afterthought. And many times, because one, it's viewed as a a pass-through tax. Yep. And two, the number's generally not as large or the liability is maybe an income tax liability. Well, and, and do you find, Joe, within kind of the Vertex system that you have existing Vertex clients who have then since bought a company and they're like, okay, well, they had no system. Now we need to bring them into ours and, you know, kind of integrate with Vertex. Do you get kind of a lot of like kind of license expansion from companies buying other companies and like trying to integrate them into like their sales tax software? Because obviously if they're an existing integration sales tax system customer, they know that sales tax is a thing and exists and they've got a piece in this other side. Do you find that you get expanded work because of those acquisitions? We do. We find out we get a lot more opportunities when there's a company that is using Vertex is acquiring another company that is not using Vertex because the company using Vertex is usually a very satisfied user Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's easy for them to integrate the company they're acquiring into the Vertex system. Is that a become an issue though with like the GL system, the connector focus? Uh, there are other providers that have been connector focus. You guys have been, I would argue, substance focus and high, con- um, more robust uh, general ledger systems and so forth focus, Fortune 1000. But then you've got these other small companies you could be acquiring that could be QuickBooks, right? Or a small to mid-tier GL system that's good enough, honestly, for their business. And I know Vertex is integrating with QuickBooks now for the last couple of years, but has that ever been like a, a problem for you where you've got a company acquiring a smaller company that doesn't have an SAP or an Oracle or JD Edwards? And then that's a problem for them to push them to the J, to the Vertex uh, product. I wouldn't say it's a problem. I will call it a challenge. Okay. I mean, basically in the past, um, Vertex has built very well constructed connectors for the Oracle, a- SAP, JD Edwards. Right. Most recently, though, we've expanded into building more connectors for some of the other smaller 
ERP systems. Right. And even and the e-commerce like Magento and so right, forth. Magento, yes. NetSuite and, and companies like that. Yep. So we've expanded into that area to make it easier to integrate. Right. But before that was the case, right? How did uh, Vertex overcome those obstacles? Did the the did this purchased company assimilate in to the to the purchasors, GL provider, so that they could do the sales tax connection they already had? Well, that would depend. I mean, because sometimes with an acquisition, some companies are going to move off their ERP system yep. into the acquiring companies. Yep. Other times they're kept separate for numerous reasons. Yep. Okay. And in those cases, Vertex would work with sometimes our consulting firm right. or other consulting firms to build a, a connector. Yeah, because that's been my experience like pre the, over the last 26 years. What would happen with some of our clients that didn't have a built-in integration because of the GL choice they had, we would build something with a Vertex engineer that would allow the two systems to talk to one another so that they could get sales tax on the invoice properly because it wasn't native to the system. And that's the case with like the leasing industry that you guys specialize in and some of the telecom and stuff and lodging and all that, that Vertex has a lot of build out for that's already sort of set up all the rates and rules and the answers that are needed by jurisdiction. And then you just have to make them connect. And that's the world I grew up with was there wasn't a connector. So you had to build it sometimes. Now there's some things that just could be added to because a technology already exists, right? That, that's right. Now we have many more pre-built connectors right. in place. So it's a much easier transition. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Even though I always feel like the cost, I always tell clients, like, so if you have a $10 million of revenue, okay. you need to manage or not manage $8 million, $800,000 of tax, 8% of a million, right? Is that 80,000? No, it's 80,000, but still a lot, right? So a lot of clients will say, well, we're all resale or we're wholesalers. It's like, you still got to manage those certificates and know what your buyer is and document it properly. So you're still managing it, even if you're not collecting it. And I think that it's a no brainer. You got to have a sales tax system. You can't manage the rates and rules yourself, but there is kind of a perception in America, I think that it's not taxable. I don't have to worry about it, right? But they don't get the docs. And because they don't get audited, they don't value automation like they should until they get beat up by an audit jurisdiction, right? So it's it's an interesting thing about which customers understand the value and have been bitten by the tax bug or sort of minimize it thinking, well, I've gotten away with it all these years. Why bother, right? So it's to, to understand how to explain to people the value of automating, which is qu quite honestly, I think, huge to remit tax in 13,000 jurisdiction in America, even if you're, you're remitting it to Texas, right? To put it in the right buckets in Texas. So what are your thoughts about that? That's true. I mean, obviously... Working in Vertex, we were always promoting tax automation. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's the way of the future. I mean, it also allows you to not only calculate the tax correctly, but generate reports. Right. So you could do analysis right. type work. Yep. And if you have an audit, you're easily able to give access to different reports to the auditors. Yep. It just makes life so much easier. Well, I also argue it's good for income tax apportionment because you can see your transaction details by state. So it actually adds a lot of other value adds aside from just the reporting. But I have people who say to me, well, I'll just put the rate on the invoice. I'm thinking you can't pick one rate, right? The rates vary by jurisdiction because of the localities. And there's, and then I think, well, it's all fine and good. If you want to say it's 8.75 in Austin and 8.25 in Dallas, good luck filling out your returns every month. <laughs> right? 
Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? To get people over that hurdle and, and educate them so that they understand the value of process. Well, and I think that's a good kind of segue into kind of the last question that I want to ask before we kind of wrap up and go to our like more fun, rapid fire, get to know you personal questions. Where do you think the future of sales tax automation is going? Because we've we've been on some kind of advisory board calls and whatnot, and they're like, okay, well, Wayfair is almost three years old, and isn't everyone integrated and whatnot? And in our mind, we're like, no, our phone is still <laughs> ringing, and I would imagine it's the same, you know, with Vertex. So, where do you think the future is with that? I think automation will always be prominent in the marketplace, and I say that because now so many more companies are multinational or global companies. Right. So if we're working with a, an automobile manufacturer who's based in the US, but has expanded operations into Canada, Canada, Mexico, or Central America, and are selling in those markets with VAT, we also need to be able to calculate that tax for them. Right. And they like to be able to go to one company that can do US sales tax and VAT tax. Yep. So Vertex is really expanded their presence in Europe and Central America, Brazil, mm-hmm. to help these companies make it easier for them to centralize the tax right. calculation and processing appliance in one area. So we have the you know medical marijuana here in Colorado. We're the first state to allow it. And you know that money is uploaded daily. Like you don't, it's it's just there. The the government gets the tax immediately. Have you guys been talking at Vertex about that ability to give the state the money the second the transaction occurs or thereafter? Has that kind of been something on the forefront of Vertex's mind? Yes, because I'm going to say maybe two years ago, Vertex had worked with a company in Spain because Spain was going to require the basically remittance of the tax at the time of the transaction. Yes. So I think that's something at some point is going to come to the United States yep. and the tax will be swept out of the company's bank account daily. Because that's the way I just think the fact that we're doing that in our medical marijuana system that costs like $25 million to bill here in Colorado, but it's an immediate transaction. The state gets that money right away. And I, if that can happen for, for pot taxes, I think it can happen for other things too. So I think, well, I just think, What's very interesting about tax that's been fascinating over the years is, you know, we used to do it on coupon books. I mean, I filled out coupon books. I I remember sticking on the copy machine. They don't fit. And the check. And then going to the post office and hand delivering those and making sure they were date stamped so they were timely filed. I mean, that's how manual that process was, right? And now they're electronic and that's ACH and you can do it online. And I mean, we've seen a lot of transition from a money movement and filing standpoint over our careers. I don't see why that can happen. I mean, shoot, I don't know if you have Venmo or Zelle. I mean, I can send money to Merida today from my bank account via Venmo if we're connected on that app. So that's kind of fascinating. I mean, PayPal was kind of revolutionary when they came out many, many years ago now, but that was kind of a big way to move money. So I think there's a lot of changes that we'll see in our careers over the next 10 years easily. I definitely agree with that. That automation will help with. Right. And I I think technology will help with the remittance of the tax. Yep. I mean, right now, most states have, you're remitting out on the 20th of the month. So you're holding that money yep. and then remitting it. And many times they're not operating 
efficiently and, and able to remit their taxes timely because yeah. they're using that money they collect for other purposes. Yes. <laughs> that, that's not going to be an option for them at some no. point. No, I had a client one time saying, but I had to pay the electricity bill. And I I said, you can't use trust fund taxes for your personal bills as a business. It's a tax of the government. You, it's not money to you, but you collect in your own bank account. So you're exactly right. You don't know, especially as a small business, like what's what, right? You kind of know, but you have all this money in your bank account. You don't realize where it's going. Yeah, big interesting issue, isn't it? That we'll be seeing over the years. And automation is the only way to solve that in my mind. I also think too, because most transactions now are done with the debit or credit card. Right. There's very little cash involved. I know. And the debit, I still don't really use my debit card. I mean, I'm I'm a credit card girl. I don't know. I just pay it off every month. But my son, when he got a debit card many years ago, he said, Mom, I got a late fee because I used my debit card. Well, he didn't have any money in his bank account to pay the <laughs> bill. I said, honey, a debit card is cash, basically. It's just via plastic. Oh, I thought it just meant I could put things on it. <laughs> And not have to pay for it. He just didn't get it, but he does now, of course. But and then he got late fees and all that good stuff. But he was more adaptive to that technology than I've been. You know, I mean, I tra- I don't do checks anymore, but I do e payments. But I used to, you know, harp pay checks, stick a stamp on it, send my bills. Right, very right. different world we're in today than what I was at when I began my life. I mean, I barely balance my checkbook now because it's all online. Oh, I think going back to like the um, kind of the the trust fund component of it, it's like you've got some some filers who are quarterly or annually, and even like systems. We had a client, Judy, you know, who was an annual filer somewhere, and all of a sudden had to admit one hundred and fifty grand, and they're like, "Oh, well, I wasn't." Like, I kind of forgot about that. Good thing I had that cash. But like, if all of this money kind of like hits your bank account and you're not good at it's it's the same bank account. You know, if your sales tax collection isn't hitting like a different account or whatnot, or you're not watching you your payable, right. you're not watching your payable, all of a sudden you're going to be like, oh, that's not good. So interesting. Yeah. I think, Joe, I totally agree with you is that I think the automation piece is always going to be there. It's never going to die, particularly given the expansion of products. You know, Mexico just legalized marijuana the other day. Like, so yeah, I think I'm right. We're right there with you. Well, and I guess I just want to say, in, in just in lieu of what you do, Joe, and automation, like, do you think automation is going to replace people? Yes, but not not fully. I mean, people are always going to have to be involved because there's going to be setup, yep. decision making, but automation will make people's jobs much easier. Yeah, I agree with that. Because I think there's a bit of a push and a pull of it to me. Like, we try to figure out where are you? Who are you? What do you need to do? Now automate that, right? But things change, right? Oh, let's add a new product. Oh, let's add this as well. Oh, let's acquire this company and pull them in. There's a human part. You can't just automate that, right? You got to figure out how to pull that information in, tax it appropriately, put it the right places. So there's still that human element with automation push-pull that I think a lot of things, you know, still gives us a great career without having to fill out a bunch of coupon books. That's true. Um, And actually, Vertex is really moving into the machine learning and artificial intelligence for internal processes to make our work easier. Right. And when you look at things like if you're on Amazon or Walmart website, or you're in Google. Yep. All the algorithms that are giving you the pop-ups of ads because you bought this, maybe you'd like this. So I think the volume of information is just going to 
be never ending. So do you think that there, that, you know, this is a common, I, I have a client who bought a, a software system that for their exemption certificates. Well, the way they set their clients up at NetSuite was certain character delineation. And then the certificates look different, by the way. So they don't match. And the machine learning needs to know there's no comma there or we're missing the LLC or something. But if it doesn't know that, it just says, nope, no good, bad cert, right? Even though it's a good enough cert, it would work for an audit. How do you think Vertex is working to enhance that, that character typing issue that companies run up against? They don't think about that with automation. Well, one thing with... Machine learning is the more information you feed into the system, mm-hmm. the better answer you're going to get. Okay. So if a company were to put an exemption certificate and for some reason doesn't match up with something, yep. once they put it in two or three times, the machine is going to learn that that exemption certificate aligns and matches up with this particular customer or transaction. Right. Enough, right? Enough information without being an absolute, like you didn't meet the exact character boxes. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting thing. I mean, that's the part where humans, unfortunately, need to overcome some of that because if the machine learning is not all intuitive there or you don't give it enough information, it's just going to time it out and say, nope, we're not going to accept this document. Even though if you look at it as a human, you're like, an auditor would accept that document. But the system's don't talk to each other right. So that's an interesting thing that I think humans still struggle with, especially when you gather exemption certificates because customer setup and POs, nobody types everything in accurately. It's just not the way it works. So, um, And if you go back many years ago, you would have clients pulling out boxes and boxes of exemption certificates. Oh yeah. I had a client that had a folder A, B, C, D, E on their desk and all of them were slid underneath the like the file. Oh, I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> so so-and-so needs to go to that desk and pull that A level up, go through all the certs and figure out if they've got the right one because it's not in a system. It's just paper. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? When I, started, when I started in public accounting, that was like viewed as a punishment. Oh Yeah. Going out, put your jeans on, yeah, get all dirty. No, that I remember that being a huge issue at Deloitte that you know, trying to manage people's certificates because clients had like hundreds of thousands of certificates and their paper. (laughs) Anyway, all right. All right. So as we are not machines, we are still humans and are we are still doing human tax work. We're gonna get to know Joe the human in a few (laughs) little kind of rapid fire questions and then we'll end. So are you ready, Joe? Sure. All right. What are you reading right now? Tax laws. <laughs> I read so much each day. I really don't read much else. There are, I, that's I funny. Reading. I kind of feel the same way sometimes. Yes. Ditto. What, not sure how much driving you're doing, but when you do drive, what do you listen to in the car? I listen to um, basically classic rock, probably from the 70s, maybe early 80s. All right. Okay. And more recently, I'll call it modern country music. Okay. Modern country? Yes. It's sort of like um, Luke Combs. Okay. Zach oh. Brown. Okay. It's, it's okay. almost like pop country, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. What is your favorite movie? This is my favorite question. What's your favorite movie? Caddyshack. <laughs> yes. I love it. I, I love not that movie. I to watch movies multiple times. Because I think once I see it, that's good. But that's one movie that I can just watch over and over. Oh, really? I love, that movie. I love Bill Murray in that movie. Oh my God. Everything about it is just quintessential 80s. And 
Yes. Coffee or tea or none, because we've learned some people don't drink either. And how do you take it? Actually, I don't drink coffee or tea. See? As a matter of fact, about two years ago when I was in California at a client, I got a latte and my friend said, well, that's not real coffee. Uh, Okay. So then you do have some sort of caffeine consumption. It is just not... It's espresso. It's espresso. But espresso, with milk. why espresso not coffee? I, okay, all right, whatever. I drink espresso too, so I didn't realize it wasn't coffee though, but okay. That's well, I would consider that coffee and steroids. Right? We can, we can modify this question on a go-forward basis is what's your caffeine consumption? Yeah, there you go. Because we have a lot Red of pop Bull, drinkers. Red Bull and vodka. I remember going to a party and somebody was drinking Red Bull and vodka. I'm like, that's a dichotomy of drink. Well, Up, down. I don't even know. Get your uppers and down yours, but I'd be a little more concerned if you're drinking Red Bull and vodka to wake up in the morning so you can <laughs> go to work. But that's, <laughs> hey, it's, it, it's pandemic time still. So, you know, sometimes it's whatever gets you through the day. All right. And our last question, Joe, is what are three words or phrases that a family member would use to describe you? First, um, they probably say crazy. <laughs> you got that one too. I have, I have three young adult children. So, you know, when I say something, they say, Dad, you're just crazy. Or when I say that costs too much, they'll say, No, you're just old. You know, things have changed. They cost more. You're old fashioned. Ooh, I love it. Okay, that's one word. No more. That's old fashioned crazy. No. Um, they actually think I'm I'm quite funny. Oh, crazy, old fashioned, and funny. I like it. You do <laughs> like the movie Caddyshack, so I can get on board with that. Yes, we'll yes. appreciate that. I mean, I had one of my daughter's friends the other day ask me to give a toast at her wedding when she gets what? married. Oh my so god, that was kind of different. That's a compliment. Yeah, I took it as one. <laughs> Right. Well, Joe, thank you so much for being with us here today. We really appreciate your insight and just this conversation. And we'll look forward to you and Judy speaking again together, you know, in your Stratford presentation. This has been another episode of the Saltivation Podcast. I'm Meredith Smith. Until next time. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.